0: Um, it's First Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 18 verse, uh, through chapter 2, verse 5. Okay. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, thus, uh, to but to who are sa- being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence um, of the intelligent, and I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of his age? He, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, <clears throat> the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, assembling blocks to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those um, whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. Um, Christ, I lost my thought. <laughs> uh, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness of Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Because it is... Uh, Because of him, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that it is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come uh, with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but God's power. All right, Pastor Dave.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Marley. Appreciate those words on holy expectations. We are expecting along with you for that child, and we will, hopefully, we are expecting along with you on, on holy expectations as well and expecting you, God to work and, and move among us. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do come before you. With expectations, with a sense of excitement, with a sense of, of really wanting you to touch our hearts and our minds today, uh, I pray that you would just take these words of mine and as Paul described, that through your power of your Holy Spirit, you would make those words real and uh, touch our hearts in ways and in places where we need to be touched. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the story goes that a certain philosophy, philosophy professor asked one question on his final exam. He picked up a chair, put it on his desk, and wrote on the board, using everything we've learned this semester, prove that this chair does not exist the students dug deep, wrote like crazy for an hour or so, some were churning out all kinds of pages of heady philosophical debate and logic, but one student turned in his paper in less than a minute and it turned out he was the only one who got an A. His response was two words, what chair? <laughs> Sometimes the wise answers are short and simple ones. And the more we reason and the more we philosophize, the farther we get from the truth. In today's text from 1 Corinthians, Paul presents a contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, and and the strength of God and the strength of man. If you remember earlier in this chapter, Paul was talking about divisions within the church. And in this passage this morning, he's not really leaving that idea behind. He's going to come back to it very much in chapter 3. The verses that we're looking at may be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but perhaps the point of this rabbit trail is to show that, wiz, that human wisdom is also responsible for leading to divisions, while the wisdom of God draws us together in unity at the foot of the cross. James writes, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere. I'm a little bit curious this morning as to what your your thoughts were when you heard the title of this message on the one call or or you saw it this morning, The Foolishness and the Weakness of God. Were you offended? Did you think those words really didn't belong together at all? Did it raise your, your curiosity? Did you wonder why we'd be talking about something like this? Did any of you say it to yourself or turn to someone else in the room and say, I knew it? I knew it, it was only a matter of time till Pastor David went over the edge. <laughs> well, those words are taken directly from our text in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than hu- human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In the New Living Translation, that verse reads, The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. In any case, Paul isn't labeling the all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe as foolish. Nor is he labeling the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe as weak. But I think his words deal more with, with comparison and with perception than perhaps reality. In, in terms of comparison, God is so wise that even if he had a moment of foolishness, his foolishness would be superior to the highest wisdom that man has to offer. And God is so strong that even if he had a weak spot, his weakness would far surpass the strength of of all mankind put together. In terms of perception, when we don't understand what God is doing, when we see His His plan is foolish and we're sure there has to be a better answer, we need to remember that even there, His foolishness is far wiser than our wisdom. When we lament that God doesn't seem to be doing what needs to be done, and and we're we're tempted to doubt His power and strength, we need to remember that even there, any proposed weakness is far stronger than any strength that we can muster. Now, Paul addresses the wisdom of man primarily in verses 19 through 21. And, And to summarize, there are three main points that Paul makes about human wisdom. First, it will not last. It will not last. God is going to destroy it. He's going to frustrate it. The intelligent, the wise, the scholar, the debater. He's going to make them look foolish. And if you think about this and apply it specifically to the wisdom and philosophy of the Greeks in Paul's day, God didn't really have to do anything special to prove it wrong. All he had to do was let time pass. And man, discover the reality of of additional facts. The world isn't flat. The planets don't revolve around the earth, and, and so on. Are we so arrogant as to think that much of the things that we hold as truth today won't also be proved false in the future? Our wisdom will not last. Second, it actually pulls us away from God. Human wisdom does not lead us to God, it pulls us away. And the more we trust in our own wisdom, the more we prize it and and hold it up as the ideal, the further away from God we move. Paul puts that very clearly in his letter to the Roman church. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That kind of wisdom will always pull us away from God. Third, it leads to arrogance. Paul uses the word boasting. Paul infers this here and elsewhere. He states it very clearly. Clearly, earthly wisdom leads to arrogance and self-promotion, to the envy, selfish ambition, and disorder that James talks about, which leads to the divisions that Paul is concerned about in the church. So Paul writes, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul determines that he will boast in nothing other than the cross. Human wisdom, the wisdom of this world, will not accomplish God's purposes. Then Paul goes on to talk about the foolishness of God's people. That's us. Now, don't get all offended here, at least not yet. Wait till later. Paul says, look around. Few of you were wise or powerful or wealthy by the standards of this world when God called you. Now, he doesn't say none. He says few. God can certainly reach the wealthy, the powerful, the the intelligent people. But as Jesus told his disciples, it's hard, very hard, for those who put their trust in in wealth and and power and human wisdom to enter the kingdom of God. Because almost everywhere you look, that's that's in conflict with trusting and putting our faith in God. It's much easier for God to call those of us who may appear foolish to the world and demonstrate His true wisdom through us. We may be seen as foolish in the ways of the world. Our lifestyles, our values, the decisions that we make will not make sense to those who do not believe in Jesus. They may even feel threatened by us in some way, and we see that happening in our world today. And so we should not be surprised if they label us as fools. But God chose you. He called you. He wants you to be part of His kingdom. And He wants His wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, to be demonstrated in your life. We may be of little consequence in the eyes of the world. Verse 28 said, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. The Greeks greatly prized the idea of being someone or being something. So that little phrase, things that are not, was one of the most contemptible phrases or expressions in the Greek language. Even today, when we're ignored, uh, treated as if we don't exist, we find that very insulting. Insulting. But we need to remember that we are of great consequence to God. And if we allow Him to have control in our lives, He will work in us and through us to accomplish His will for us. We have become fools for Christ. Later in this letter, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, describing the role of the apostles of Christ, Paul writes, we are fools for Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Again, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. You don't have to be stupid to accept and serve Jesus. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you are baptized and, and come into the kingdom. God has given you a brain. He's given you intelligence and learning. And he wants and expects you to use those in serving him in his kingdom. A frustrated father wrote that his teenage son took an IQ test and the results came back negative. (laughs) We don't want to be like that in serving God. But we do need to trade in the wisdom of this world for God's wisdom. We do need to trust in his word and his ways rather than leaning on our own understanding. Moving on, Paul talks about the foolishness of our message. He begins with, the message of, cro- of the cross is foolishness. And he goes into greater detail than in chapter 2. Paul points out that the message that we have to share with the world, our testimony about Christ, our, our good witnessing to the good news of salvation in Him, will seem foolish. We might think we need to have just the right argument and method of delivery. We need to have just the the right sales pitch and the right answers lined up in order to to sell our product. Lacking that, we feel unqualified to share our faith with others. Paul was a groundbreaking apostle. He was God's special minister to the Gentiles. He was a, a church planner and a master overseer as well as church planner. But he says that he delivered the message in weakness, fear, and much trembling. He didn't have eloquence or or superior wisdom or, or wise and persuasive words. He preached a simple message of the cross and the resurrection. And his message was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize the failure of, pervasive word, of persuasive words. The failure of persuasive words. We've already addressed the shortcoming of, of man's wisdom and, and philosophy and powers of reasoning. Yet too often we fall back on those very things in our presentation or our defense of the gospel or our attempts to explain how, how God and the Holy Spirit are working and moving in our lives and in the world. And that will rarely be effective. Furthermore, if people do buy into the faith based on human reasoning or emotional appeals or scare tactics or manipulative words, then their faith may rest on that reasoning, on those emotions that will fade away rather quickly rather than being based on the power of God, the permanence of His love, and the historical fact of His death and resurrection. Our message will accomplish God's purposes when it's accompanied by a successful demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's why Paul's message was effective. God keeps reminding me over and over again, that it's not about us. It's not about our words. It's about His power. It's about His Holy Spirit. Probably the most vivid way God communicated this to me was over 20 years ago. When I was preparing for our first open anointing service at the, at the congregation that I served previously. I had felt God laying this on my heart over a period of time and in a number of ways. And, and I went to the deacons to ask for, in a sense, permission and also some guidance as to how to prepare for that service. As I began to, to get ready during the week for that, for that service, I'll admit I had some fear. What, what if I'm wrong about this? What if this really isn't what God wants? What if, what if nobody responds? As I was praying earlier in the week, God gave me sort of a snapshot, I won't call it a vision, but a snapshot of people lined up across the front of our church waiting to be anointed. And, and it really grabbed hold of me. It seemed clear that's what He wanted. It, it seems that clear that that's what was going to happen. And so I, with renewed energy, I kind of poured myself into putting together a message that would make that happen. But on Saturday evening, As I sat at my computer and went over that message, my heart sank because I realized it was pretty lame. The words on that paper were never going to accomplish what God had shown me in that picture. So I I went over the church and the sanctuary was dark and I just turned on the one light that that shone on the picture of Christ in the front. Similar a bit to ours, only it, it was Jesus praying in the garden. And I began to pray, or I should say whine, to God about how this message was never going to make that happen. And I don't know if I expected him to pat me on the shoulder and, and tell me that the message was, was really better than I thought, or if he was just going to, bam, put a whole, whole new wonderful message into me to deliver, but he didn't either. He didn't speak audibly, but what I got was, well, duh, Did you really think this was about you? Did you really think this was going to be accomplished by you typing certain words into your handy-dandy little computer, printing them out on Saturday night, and then spitting them back out to the congregation on Sunday morning? Well, it's not about you, and it's not about your words. It's about me. It's about what I purpose to do in the Holy Spirit. For all your words matter in this thing, they're fine. They're reasonably close to what I actually want you to say. Just come back over here tomorrow morning. Deliver the message I've given you. Give the invitation. Watch the Holy Spirit move and stay out of my way. And one other thing, David, make sure you've got plenty of oil with you. The next morning I gave the message, and even as I was delivering the message my mind is thinking, wow, this is really uninspiring. This is, this is really bad. But I got done. I invited those who wanted to be anointed to come. The organist began to play the introduction, and before we even got to the first words of the song, there were people coming in the aisle. Twenty people came forward that morning, and with the people who came up with them to pray with them, it looked just like the snapshot. God had given me early in the week. None of that happened because of eloquence, superior wisdom, or persuasive words. Those were all distinctly absent from my message. It was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't worry if you don't have all the answers, the right words, or the best presentation. Invite the Holy Spirit to use you and then just trust him. And follow him and allow him to do what he wants to do in you and through you now we get to the best part the foolishness of the cross and again the foolishness of the cross is in the perception of the world not in reality the cross is a stumbling block to those who trust in religion it was a stumbling block to the jews They were trusting in their knowledge of of, of Scripture and prophecy, although all that did for them was give them a preconceived idea of the Messiah that was wrong. They prided themselves on their religious and national heritage. They were the people of God. They prided themselves on their ability to follow the law, even though they could not. Jesus did not fit their erroneous knowledge or their preconceptions. A message of grace, mercy, and salvation by faith didn't fit their legalism and their pride. Even though one of the greatest examples of all of those things was the father of their nation, Abraham. And crucifixion on the cross was not at all their vision for the Messiah. Even Jesus' disciples stumbled on that one. If we're trusting in our knowledge, even our knowledge of Scripture and prophecy, if we're, we're trusting in our own righteousness or, or our heritage, if we've put God into a neat little box based on how we think He should act and respond, then we're going to stumble over the message of the cross. The cross is also foolishness to those who trust in human reasoning. Again, the Greeks prized themselves on their philosophy, on their ability to be able to think through and, and reason their way to truth. There's nothing philosophical or reasonable about the cross. You can accept it by faith or you can reject it, but you're not going to get there by human reason. If you trust in the power of the human mind, the message of the cross is going to seem foolish to you. The good news is, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God to salvation. At the cross, we lay down our preconceptions about God and how He works. We we tear up those little boxes we want to put Him in. We admit that we can't live up to God's law or measure up to His standards. We trade all of that in for God's grace, for faith, for trust in Jesus. We, we commit ourselves to follow even when we don't understand, even when it seems foolish, recognizing again that what we might perceive as foolishness is far wiser Than anything you and I will ever come up with. At the cross, we lay down our philosophies and our human reasoning. We admit we can't reason our way to truth and salvation, and we accept the sacrifice of God's Son. That is not a sad thing, folks. That is a glorious thing. At the cross, Jesus becomes our wisdom our righteousness, our strength, and our redemption. We find all of that in Him, and He becomes everything to us. The very life that we live, the very air that we breathe. We need to come to the cross. We need to come to the cross for that first time. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. Repenting of our sins. Committing ourselves to walk with and follow Him. And we need to revisit the cross again and again. We need to come again in repentance. We need to to come for forgiveness. We need to come again when we've slipped away. We need to come again to be reminded of God's love of His wisdom, and of His power. The world may see the cross as foolishness. The world may see the cross as the weakness of God. But we put our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. This morning... As we sing our hymn, if you've never come to the cross, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and to do so. If there's another reason, if the Holy Spirit is working in your life regarding some other matter, and you simply feel that need again to come to the cross, recognizing it as God's strength and God's wisdom. The altar is open for you to come. I'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your plan of salvation. We understand that for many, it is foolishness and weakness. For many, it makes no sense at all. But for those of us who are being saved, it means everything. And so we thank you, and we praise you this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit would just be working and moving among us. That in whatever way we need to come to the cross, that you might encourage us and strengthen us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.